Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to Man Pepper, a baseball podcast, straight baseball banter, with your hosts, Jake and Chris. What's going on, dude? What's up, Jake? What's going on, man? A little hiatus there. You know, life got in the way, but we're back at it, shooting another episode here, and we're bringing a guest in right off the top. Uh, this is a special one to me, a good friend, someone I actually haven't seen in person in a few years. Thank you, COVID. Um but we did talk about Chris at the start of season two here that we may introduce other sports, other angles, uh, still surrounding kind of the sports world, obviously, and what it takes, leadership, camaraderie, all those good things. I think this will be a good guest today. Danny Short, an NFL referee. Thanks for joining us, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. Good to see yeah, you, Yeah, we might Jake. have to change... I have to change the tagline. It's not straight baseball banter anymore. We're getting to the NFL world today, which I know. is awesome. NFL ref and a baseball podcast. I like it. Yeah. There we go. There we go. So real quick for the fans out there. So Danny and I, man, I came down to North Carolina literally almost 11 years ago. And I think that's when you and I first met yeah. uh, working together. In the corporate world. Yeah. Corporate world. Yes, yes, yeah. Not, I'm by no means any anything to do with refereeing or umpiring um, <laughs> in the corporate world. Um, good friendship. We had a lot of things in common. Uh, just good dude. Um, kept in touch outside of all the job uh, switching. You know, I've done so. Yeah, good we friend. We played on that league basketball team together. I think yep. we were. I think we were pretty bad, weren't we? Uh, I don't think we won more than a game or two in the pretty pretty athletic church Charlotte league. That yeah, we played it was supposed in. to be a church league, and we were getting dunked on. I remember that. So. Yeah, Alley oop dunked on, and we're like, <laughs> we can't even. We can't even get it up and down the court six times. What church hey. has these kind of athletes? <laughs> hey, Dan, when we're off of this, I'm going to send you a video of Jake attempting a dunk the last time we uh, we hung out in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a really great slow-mo video. Jake can't dunk. <laughs> it's an amazing video. Well, one of the stories I remember about that team specifically, we had a player on there who proclaimed to be a shooter. So I remember like the first game, he couldn't hit a shot. And he was like, guys, I, I'm a shooter. It's just not flowing. So Jake and I were trying to be supportive, like keep firing away. Like game two, we were like, okay, you got to stop shooting. Like you're not hitting anything. You remember who I'm talking about, Jake? Oh, yeah. I remember exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. I, so we I were not very good. One of his worst ones was a uh, baseline shot and went off the backboard on that first game. And we're like, that's it. You're done. Yeah. Is, yeah, his, we're is his name Michael Free- Scott? <laughs> yeah. He today. <laughs> We started freezing him out. I felt bad, but he was just, he kept firing away and wasn't hitting anything. So, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So we go back about 11 years and uh, it's good to see you, man. Um, And good to have you on. Hey, so before we get into the background here, Danny, and talking about all your, you know, career and where you're at, where you've come from, this is a baseball podcast. So we got to talk a little baseball. And by all means, chime in. We'll talk for a few minutes here, see where it goes. But, Chris, what I wanted to ask you today is overreactions one week into the season. We're recording on a Thursday, the Thursday after opening day. Um, a lot of things to overreact about. So let me go first. Adam Duvall of the Red Sox will win AL MVP. Overreaction. I mean, he started off hot, but that's going to conflict directly with my overreaction. Oh, that's even better. That's even better. Kyle Tucker, AL MVP. Oh, man. <laughs> that's not an overreaction. That's like something that could really legitimately You're right. happen. You're right. And because he has the talent to do it, uh, he's pretty much a five-tool guy. Maybe he, start, maybe he gets like 20 bags this year, 25, who knows. But, I mean, he's got the tools to hit 40, I think. And if he could keep that average up to like 275, the only problem is – He's got a lot of good hitters around him. So to win MVP in a lineup like that, you really have to stand out. That's my only concern. But I won't be shocked if he wins one in his career and he's started off in a good way. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, that's much more believable than Adam Duvall. Uh, <laughs> Adam Duvall. <laughs> I mean, he set like an NFL or an NFL. See, I'm already thinking football, Danny. <laughs> you set like an MLB like record or something or a Red Sox record already with most RBIs in the first three or four games or something. No, man, he's been amazing. I've been looking to pick him up in fantasy leagues. But then I look back at his like last eight year stats and I'm he like, he does this all the time. He does this yeah. all the time. He goes hot for like two weeks and then he forgets how to play. Danny um, was chiming in. Sorry, I cut him yeah, off. Yeah, what you got? You got any overreactions a weekend, man? Anything? It has nothing to do with the MVP. All I can tell you is I like watching the long ball, so I'm always watching Mike Trout if I can. I want to see the long ball, right? But just you guys are way deeper in it. So I've listened to a couple of your podcasts just to hear it, and you guys get really deep into baseball, right? But as a casual fan, the new rule of the pitch clock is phenomenal. Love yeah. it. I was watching a Yankees game the other night, and it was like the game was just moving, moving. Yep. And it's like, what took them so long to get to this point? Now, I did see like they – they ejected the guy from San Diego. I forget. Um, Machado. Machado. But it's like, hey, man, the, the rules are the rules. And it, this is the best thing for fans. Now, you guys could probably deal with the three and a half, four hour games. No problem because you love it so much. But I normally was the kind of fan. I didn't watch it until October. Like, I didn't want to yeah. watch it until October. Now, it's like I'm watching it now because I know I can watch it for an hour and still see a lot of baseball. So, to go to your question, Danny, about why did it take so long? I was listening to a podcast the other day, The Daily, the New York Times podcast. And they had an episode right before opening day about um, basically the all the rule changes, the pitch clock, and how the title of the uh, podcast is how the home run ruined baseball, right? Because baseball essentially gravitated towards three true outcomes, strikeouts, walks, and home runs to the detriment of everything else that is great about the game. And they interviewed Rob Manfred and asked him that question. They said, like, why did it take, I think it was eight years into him being commissioner to actually implement the rule. And he basically said, I'm not a baseball guy in the sense of he, he felt like he might've lacked some credibility because he didn't yeah. play the game. He wasn't an yeah. owner. Um, he wasn't a manager. He was a labor attorney. So he came in as a commissioner and knew about this issue from year one. They had fan uh, polling and studies in terms of what the fans wanted and what the perceived problems were in the game. And he wanted to do something earlier and probably seven or eight years is too long, but I think it took him that long to test this thing out in the minor leagues and actually get buy-in from the owners and the MLB players to actually implement it. Still probably should have happened earlier, but that's awesome to hear from, I mean, you describe yourself as a casual fan Yep. And I still th I think about myself that way. I don't watch 162 games a year and primarily because they're four hour games. So yeah. has the pitch clock saved baseball? We're only a week into the season, but maybe. Is that the overreaction? I love it. But maybe it's not an overreaction. I love it. I love it. It's a great I'm start in. for sure. I mean, there's always other things that can be done in every sport to improve it for because it's always about the viewership, right? It's all about the TV. So you got to do things to keep the audience, the eyes on the screen. So it's a great start. So. That's a yeah. That's a good point. Hey, last overreaction before we get into some some uh, NFL talk. This one's a little more plausible, I think. The Phillies or Mets missed the playoffs. I almost said and both, Chris. Um, I think I think they could miss the playoffs. They being either one of them. Obviously, the Phillies start and look like crap. They have no pitching, but their offense is stacked. It's a pretty bold kind of prediction. Um, given that six teams can make the playoffs now. So you got to have some things go right in some of the other divisions for some of those fringe teams. I don't know. It could be a World Series hangover for uh, the, the Phillies. And as we talked about in our last podcast, how stacked and how, how unstacked the Mets are because of injuries, a lot can happen. I like the take. I mean, the Phillies are going to hit. Um, I'm not saying that they'll definitely make the playoffs, but they're going to hit. We talked about it last episode, though, Jake. Mets were the betting favorite, I believe, at the time to win the NL and to win the World Series. And I said, "Pump, let's pump the brakes." You did. You said, "Pump." We got we got a forty-one-year-old ace. We have a thirty-one-year-old, thirty-eight-year-old number two. At the time, the closer was still healthy. <laughs> Diaz and Quintana, and their third pitcher was still healthy. Still healthy. Those two guys are down. I mean, the whole take was they're all injury prone. Maybe not Diaz, but everyone else or didn't have a track record of throwing a ton of innings year after year after year. And it's already rearing its head one week into the season. So they're an injury away from Verlander yeah. or Scherzer, you know, two months on the shelf with something a month. Like 
it, it, I want to be I want to be loving being a Mets fan right now. It still could turn. I mean, we're super early, but I just I felt like the warning signs were there early yeah. on. Yeah. So I got to put take. my I got to put my vote in on this, right? I'm yeah, an Atlanta Braves fan. Born in the South, Atlanta Braves. Mets historically choking the playoffs, so I would like the Phillies to lose so we can face the Mets in the playoffs <laughs> and then let them choke. So that's yep. what I'm cheering for. All right. I like it. Well, the Braves are sick, right. so I'm with you with that one. <laughs> my uh, my last overreaction is the Red Sox will not make the playoffs. What do you think about that for an overreaction? I think that's very plausible. <laughs> yeah, me too. They look like doo-doo butter served on a platter this year. Can we, so. Real quick, Jake. So the Sox won their second game of the year on the walk-off, right? And I did not watch. I watched opening day. I didn't watch game two. So I saw they walked off. I was checking you know, ESPN app. I was like, great, one-on-one. I saw the highlights the next day and I texted you about it. Yeah. They're down. They're down a run in the ninth with two outs. Yep. Routine pop up to left field. And the Orioles left fielder just takes his eye off it and just hits off the palm of his glove and drops. Somehow that ball was in the air for like 15 seconds. It felt like the Red Sox batter doesn't even make it to second because he felt <laughs> like it was a routine pop fly. And then Duvall, right? Walk off Homer. Um, so without that, one of the one of the worst uh, I guess it was a choke job, really. I mean, second game of the season, it didn't mean that much, but pretty ridiculous way to lose a game for the Orioles. But without that, for the Sox, they're like one and six yep. going into today. So, Terrible. yeah, not feeling good. All right, not can I, Jake, good. can I tell you two quick baseball stories before we jump into the football thing? Please do. So the first, as a kid, my best sport, best sport by far was baseball. I was a stud infielder as a little leaguer, right? So make the make the all-star team going we're going to conquer Williamsport. We don't make it out of the city, right? The next year, following year, is I think it's Babe Ruth at that point, right? So I go to tryouts for the Babe Ruth and I realize every kid now is going to 13 and people started hitting growth spurts. I'm starting to see heroin kids and the you know, the vocal cord stuff. And I'm still like this little minion guy. So, but I'm not afraid of it, but I take a fastball right on my left eye and I got a picture where I, you can see the threads of the baseball perfectly aligned on my eye socket right there. And that was the end of my baseball career as a player. Uh, it's like, cause I wasn't growing. Everybody else was growing. The pitches were coming a lot faster. The balls were coming off the bat a lot faster. And I just said, I'm out, I'm tapping out. I'm switching to basketball. And then I got one other story. So my dad's best friend was a guy named Tommy Hams. He played second base for the Cincinnati Reds, a longtime major leaguer. And then he became an assistant manager with Pete Rose. So I grew up going to Cincinnati every summer to watch the Braves play Cincinnati. Like that's what we did every nice. summer vacation, right? So I'm with my cousin and we're in left field and during BP and all these guys are crushing balls over the left field fence. Some of them get into the stands, some of them don't. You look below between the stands and the fence and there's baseball galore. My cousin had created this contraption where he could, with a fishing reel and coat hanger, wire coat hanger, somehow he put a hinge on it, and he would take the coat hanger and drop it down and scoop up all these balls behind left field fence. (laughs) We had two popcorn baskets of baseballs, and my dad's down on the field hanging out with his buddy Tommy Hams, and we get escorted and kicked out of the stadium by (laughs) Cincinnati Red security for – I don't even know what they, they just pinned us like we're using this illegal. We had a literally a fishing reel and this yeah. wire device that would just go on the ball, clamp it. And we realized we had 20 balls in these popcorns, you know, for a kid, a baseball fan, that was like, we did the jackpot. Oh they, yeah. They, they kicked us out of the stadium. So they needed that in the sandlot. So <laughs> yes, those are the two morals I just got. So I got two morals out of those stories, Danny. One <laughs> is, where was this in the sandlot? And two, <laughs> you peaked really early. I did. I did. I did. <laughs> well, those are my two takeaways. Yeah. Baseball career so, peaked early, but baseball. he's currently peaking. It, it did. It did, <laughs> unfortunately. All right. So now we can jump into football. You like. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Danny, I'd love for you to kind of give us, you know, a start back where you started. Like, how did you even get involved with refereeing? Did you start with football? Give us honestly, a little bit of the backstory and how you got to becoming a whack, you know, NCAA official and then the ACC for six years and then just finishing your six years as an NFL referee. Yeah. 
Okay. So just like every kid, I played all the sports. Like I told you about baseball, I played basketball, I played football. Um, when I got to around 14, I decided I wanted to be a basketball player. That was going to be my thing, right? So I started playing basketball year round. And there was a local YMCA in Charlotte. I grew up in Charlotte. And that was where all the best competition was being played at this YMCA. And we couldn't afford to get a membership there. But I made a deal with the, the athletic director of this YMCA when I was 16. He would give me a free membership. And in return, I would officiate six-year-old basketball, right? The hardest sport to officiate is six-year-olds running around, not knowing what they're doing, just banging each other. But I did it on Saturdays, and therefore, I got my free membership. And I just discovered through that, actually, I was pretty good at it. Natural, had no formal training when I was doing it. Then they asked me, said, hey, why don't you come do our Pro-Am League? They had a Pro-Am up there, former uh, professional, semi-pro basketball players, collegiate players. They played in the league up there. So I started officiating at 17 years old, these Pro-Am players, and was no formal training and was even better at it. So I just realized I had kind of a, a natural knack for this thing. So basketball was my focus. Football was not in my line of sight. So I went on to play one-year junior college basketball. I got invited to try to walk on at Appalachian State. They all offered me a walk-on position at Appalachian State. So I went up there and I broke my ankle and ended my basketball career, but started officiating again up at Appalachian State and discovered intramural flag football. Well, I don't know if you guys did it or are aware, but there is a national championship of flag football, of the intramural flag football. Teams from colleges all over the country send uh, teams that used to be to New Orleans, to play for this national championship. And I got selected doing rec games at Appalachian State. Through that, I got selected to represent Appalachian State in the national championship. So I was really getting going in this refereeing thing and, and starting to really get into football and just discovered I didn't like officiating basketball as much because I really would rather have been playing because I loved playing yeah. so much. But I loved officiating football because I love football, but I knew I was never going to be a football player. Um, but I love being on the field, being the cl as close to the action as I could be. And when I went to New Orleans to, to work the national championships, I met a gentleman from the NFL. And I just, at that point, I think at that point I was 19 years old or something like 18 or 19 years old. And I just realized that's what I want to do. I'm going to be an NFL official. Uh, at that point, it was, it was great beer money I was making through the intramural system and just having a blast doing it and then discovered, okay, I want to be a, in the NFL. So at that point, I started doing – I was still in college doing high school football, officiating high school football. So I was one of the younger guys out there. And then at that point, you just start progressing, just like in everything else. You kind of start from the bottom. You work your way up. I did Pop Warner football, flag football. And then I started doing JV football, varsity football. Then I moved out west to California for work for my corporate job. And there I started doing junior college football and got into Division three. And then I got hired into 1AA, and then eventually I made it into the WAC. So I spent two years in the WAC, moved back to uh, North Carolina, and then the ACC picked me up. And so I spent six years in the ACC before getting hired to the NFL. Danny, real quick, like the jump between when you talk about, oh, I just went out west and, you know, I got picked up. Like oh. you're obviously doing some networking amongst oh. the referee community, like, are you sending like at that time, like videotape of your refereeing skills? Like, I, I, I'm sound like an idiot saying it, but like, how do you get seen? Like, it starts very basic, right? Like there are essentially like in San Diego, they had a class where we studied college rules. So you get together and it's, it's as much as a networking thing as it is, as I've learned to like the college rules, right? So there's classes for high school officiating and there's classes for college officiating. So you start, I started there just going to meetings with no intention of getting any games that year, just starting to meet people, let them know who I am. And then you start working a scrimmage. So you get asked, hey, go to LA City College and work this scrimmage and got and people get to see you. And then eventually you get hired like, okay, we're going to work you one game. They send you to some crappy college somewhere and you work that one game and you prove that you're qualified. And then you just, it kind of goes that way all the way up. Like you being good enough to officiate is not always enough. You've got to have name recognition. People got to yep. be helping you up and getting your name out there because there's so many people officiate. They got to get help you get your name out there. I want to yeah. ask about, so you start doing the six year old boys basketball, which I understand how challenging that could be. I coach 13 year old boys and even refing that has to be, yeah. I mean, there's a travel on every play and you got to let yeah. the game keep going, but it seemed like your next step was 
you were 17 doing pro-am basketball mm-hmm. games. To be a ref and to be successful at it, you obviously have to have, I think, thick skin. And you have to be confident in your ability and your calls. You have to just be confident in the decisions that you're making. What yep. was it like, though, being a kid at that time, refing grown men? And I'm sure that you were getting heat at that time in games that meant a lot to those players. Like, was that a learning curve or were you pretty much like there at the beginning with respect to your mindset? I'd say it's a little bit of both, right? So definitely that level is probably one of the harder levels to work, especially for basketball, right? Because you got people who still think they have a shot. They're mm-hmm. still living a dream, right? So it's it means a lot to them, right? And then you got 10 people on a court that are ultra competitive and they just, it, it's like an argument every call type thing. Yeah. But I also had, there was a natural component where I just, I, I, I kind of dove right into it and I had a natural fit to it and did really well. I mean, I, I didn't go without my problems and you learn to mitigate and manage. And it's, it's the absolute, it was the absolute best training ground, right? Because when I actually started doing the youth league stuff, when I got into football, unfortunately for, for youth sports these days, parents can make it difficult, right? They, mm-hmm. the parents can get worse than the actual athletes can get. And so I had already had a lot of experience dealing with with intense uh, adults. So when I got to youth football, it was like easy. It was nothing. They were no big deal. So, gotcha. So so fast forward now to your ACC days back in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, six years. You know, um, before you get to the NFL for a second, I do remember you did a a nat- was it a national championship game or a bowl game with uh, Alabama. Yeah, so it wasn't a national championship. It was the Sugar okay. Bowl. It Sugar was the Bowl, Sugar okay. Bowl, uh, Oklahoma and Alabama. And I think, God, I think that was 2014, maybe. I can't remember exactly. But, it, you know, at that time, they didn't have the traditional playoff series like they do now. Now right. it's just, it was, I think it was still just a vote or whatever they did. And so when you're at the collegiate level, you obviously now, the national championship game is the big game, right? Like that's the the coup de grace for an official. And then you got the playoff games. Those are the next steps. Back then, most of us, we just wanted a New Year's Eve or New Year's Day game. Like that was considered like the top tier bowl assignment. If you could get a New Year's Day, New Year's Day bowl assignment. Like it was like, it was like the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, I can't, you got to help me with the Tostitos Fiesta Bowl. There were like Mm -hmm. four bowls. Orange Orange Bowl. It might have been the Orange Bowl. So those were, so I've worked in my my collegiate, I I worked the Sugar Bowl, which was probably the top bowl game that I worked Alabama and Oklahoma. Oklahoma upset Alabama at that time. Um, I've worked the Orange Bowl with Michigan and um, Florida. And then I worked the Citrus Bowl with, uh, oh God, I can't even remember. I mean, Wisconsin and, who was the row your boat guy before he got really? Dude. Um, he's now at he's at a big is he at a Big Ten school or Big anyway? Um, so that was so, but the Sugar Bowl was the biggest of all. I never got to do a national championship back then. They just didn't have the structure. Right. So yeah, yeah. Well, where I was going with it, um, there was there's a picture I think because we were obviously working together down here yeah. uh, at our corporate jobs. And someone had like sent around a picture of like you on the sideline, like, and it got me thinking, I'm like, damn, Danny looks, you know, like ripped and like <laughs> made me think like all these college, you know, referees, a lot of them, they're all looking pretty good. Like everyone's pretty stout. So like, are you guys doing pushups before you go out to the games? Like, what's the deal here? It's funny you touch on that, right? Because there certainly is a physical standard now that's been elevated from the old days. I think if you talk to people who, who, paid attention to officials back in the day there was this image of a kind of guy with a big old gut older gentleman type thing or older person as the get the game has gotten more athletic obviously we're officials in general held to a much more athletic standard and now people are getting in ed hockley who was in the nfl is now retired kind of set the bar for like being oh, yeah. jacked up right we do have there is a kind of a fraternity in in the college ranks uh, and sometimes it leaks into the NFL a little bit, but we 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 call them we uh, we like to refer to them as the Schmedium Club, right? So sometimes <laughs> there are some legitimate guys that are getting in there and pumping the iron. They're big dudes because there's a lot of former college players who officiate, college, former NFL players who officiate. So they're just big dudes. But there are some guys that like to use the art of deception, maybe I would call it or something like that, and they wear a small shirt when they really should be wearing a large something. Like that. So we call them the Schmedium Club and. 
So there was one guy named Mike DeFee who made it famous. How he worked the national championship game. I don't know what was that five or six years ago. And the announcers, that's all they were talking about was that the guns on, on that guy. <laughs> and, and there's always been debate amongst the fraternity officials. Like does the guy's arm that really big or how, how tight are those shirts? You know? So it's always kind of a, a joke within our fraternity. I mean, is there like a little room in the side before, you know, the kickoff where guys are just getting a couple curls in real quick or some push-ups, get the veins popping or what? No, I'll, I'll tell you, in college, I remember going to some of the college locker rooms. They would put us in certain places. they just put you in a corner of the weight room. So certainly guys could go over there and lift weights. Like in the NFL, fortunately, our, our, our situation is a little bit better. We have dedicated locker rooms. And the only thing they usually have in there is a bike, a little recumbent bike to get us warmed up and some bands to stretch. There's no no iron pumping going on. Not yet, at least. That's fun. What's the material of those shirts? Because like they're are they like spandexy workout shirts? I mean, obviously not in the cold, but like when it's warm, they um, they look like they're stretchy yeah. and nice and comfy. They're like a, a, a polyester blend, or maybe like a cotton polyester blend. I'm telling you, it's all, all you gotta do is just buy a tighter shirt. That's all you gotta do. And it just <laughs> Got so, it. Uh, so, or just do yeah. a bunch of push-ups before the game. You, know, you can do a bunch of push-ups. Yeah, okay. I went through. A, so, I went through a phase like that when you're trying to get to the NFL, and that's your dream. You've been defined as your dream. You're willing to do anything, and you think, "Hey, if they're looking at me, I'll go in there and do a couple push-ups just so I look a little bit buffer." So, yeah, I'm sure no one was hitting that squat rack before the game. Then, right? It oh was, no, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, mess with that? That was that's covered with black pants. We wear black pants now. So. <laughs> so so, Danny, we're talking about like obviously the journey of the NFL, right? And you're going to do what you got to do. Like, what was it like when you either got the call or the letter or whatever the notice was that you either were hired for that job or eligible? What was that day like? And just tell us about that. Yeah, just to get, I'll give you a little kind of walk to that point. So, when, once you get into the college ranks, the NFL has scouts across the country and they start to look at officials. And they identify people within the college officiating ranks to say, hey, this, this is a potential official so once i got identified they start then start to build kind of like a dossier on you they kind of follow you watch your game see how you're performing all that stuff and then they start to bring you in in a more formal process so you know you go through an interview process um those type of things and and so i went through the interview process so then you you wait you wait for the opportunity because it's a numbers game there's only 125 officials approximately i don't know that is exact number but in the NFL. So there's not a lot of opportunity to get in there every year. We may only have a few openings. So I got the call a few days before my birthday from Dean Blandino was a supervisor official now who's always on Fox TV yeah. doing kind of the analytical aspects of officiating. And he called me and when 212, which is Manhattan, New York City calls, like I knew, I said, okay, either this is a really good call or a really bad call, right? This is the call to say you're coming in the NFL or this is the call to say we're not really that interested in you, right? So Dean Blandino called me and says, hey, we'd like to offer you a spot in the NFL. And I kind of gave him the, are you shitting me thing? And he goes, well, that's not the typical response I got. You know, I'm, I'm more than happy to go to the next guy on the line. In the, in line. I was like, no. So it was obviously having worked for so long towards that, it was extremely, you know, exhilarating for me. I was like, I was in at work. I was at a work function in a meeting when the call came in. And I see 212. I didn't even tell him I was leaving. I just bolted, left the meeting took the call and was, you know, super pumped up. And first thing I did, I had to call my mom, tell my mom. Then I had to call my wife. Like I had this pecking order in my mind. Like, okay, I got to call these people in this particular specific order to tell them I'm in the league. Cause you know, there's a lot of people, you can't do it on your own. There's a lot of people both within the officiating community and outside the officiating community that it takes for you to be successful to get to that point. Cause it, it's such a significant commitment. So I had to call all these people and let them know. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, think about you're working a full-time job, corporate world. Yeah. And the commitment for NCAA is obviously a lot, but I imagine the commitment and the responsibility when you get to the NFL, it's like, okay, now I'm now I'm there. I mean, it's it's not like you're like, oh, I'm just flying off real quick on a Saturday night, doing a quick yeah. game on Sunday and coming home. I'd love to get into kind of like what that routine looks like, but like, yeah, it's a freaking huge yeah. commitment, family and all. Yeah, I mean, it's... A all the way up from the pop Warner level, it's a tremendous sacrifice and it's a commitment that your family has to be. You have to have everyone in your household has to be on board, right? Because on Saturdays when a lot of people are cutting the grass and going grocery shopping and doing family things, I'd have to be at the football field working four to six games a day doing pop Warner. I'd do it on Sunday doing church league flag football. 
Then once I got into college, I lived in San Diego, but had to drive up to Los Angeles. So I do uh, some games on Thursday, do JV and varsity games on Friday night for high school, and then leave at Saturday morning at six in the morning to drive up to LA to do a JUCO uh, football game at one o'clock in LA. So the wife, the kids, everybody has to be on board with it. It's just a tremendous sacrifice. And then when you get to the NFL, the commitment becomes even greater, right? So if you just start a week preparation, like I start, we start Wednesday, I will start, and I'm going to walk you through from Wednesday to the following Wednesday, right? It, yeah. It'll make sense when I go through it. So we start, we start scouting the teams that we're working that following Sunday. So we look at the offensive teams for each team, the defensive side of the ball for each team. We start to look at tendencies, what type of plays they run, what type of formations, because we want to be solid in being prepared in our mechanics and what we can expect. You know, we want to understand who their big go-to receivers are. We want to know who their stud defensive players are and, and those types. So we, we will scout the teams. We also have the NFL requires us to take an exam, a rules exam, every week. So we've got to take that exam. Usually, I think it's done by Wednesday night or Thursday night. I can't remember exactly right now, but you got to take that test, right? Then if it's a Sunday, one o'clock kick, I've got to be at the game site. Just traditional, most games are Sunday, one o'clock. I've got to be there Saturday by three o'clock into the, the city where we're going. And then we will have usually anywhere from a two to three hour meeting Saturday with the entire crew, including on-field officials and replay staff, where we talk about... Uh, the game itself, we're getting ourselves prepared, talking about, again, talking about what our scouting situation looked like, all the different things that the insights that we've come from it in order to be prepared. Then we'll meet again Sunday morning before, you know, in the morning for an hour, talk a little bit more, and then we leave off, we go to the stand, we work the game. When the game's over, usually I get home on a last flight Sunday night. I've got to go into my corporate job Monday. And I've got right. to, at some point, start evaluating my performance from Monday night, right? So I start, and we are our own biggest critics, right? Like, we scrutinize our own uh, game footage worse than any fan will, worse than any sports talk show will. We will scrutinize ourselves, and we'll go through. And then uh, some crews do it differently, but our crew will have a Tuesday night call where we go, okay, what did we do good? What did we do bad? What can we do to, to be better? And so we will go through those things. And then Wednesday starts the process for getting ready for the next game. So that process, that cycle goes on for 20 weeks, basically, because we'll start that cycle in preseason and go into the regular season, going into the, into the playoffs. Man. Yeah. I've got kind of two questions. The first one, maybe this is obvious, but to me, it seems like you have to just absolutely love it to, to even go down this road, especially with the, trying to be an NFL ref because at the end of the day, first of all, it's not a full-time job, which is unique. Right. I think in terms of professional referees, like it's probably the only sport maybe that uh, lends itself to that arrangement since it's once, once a week, essentially. I mean, NFL is three days a week now, but like if you're a baseball umpire, you can't work. You're working seven, six, seven days a week. Cause baseball plays every day. But basketball you, too. So if you're, yeah, basketball too. If you're doing right. Pop Warner and driving two hours to do JV and varsity games yep. with the NFL, basically like almost a flicker in your eye at that point, right? Because at that point you're doing varsity high school. I mean, you have to absolutely love it. Yeah. Right. It, 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 I'm telling you, like on Sundays, the three hours that we have uh, as a cohesive unit on the football field, it is the absolute best best feeling in the world, best place to be in the world. It's just, there's something about it. It's hard to explain. You know, we've got the best seat in the house. We're seeing the, the most elite athletes in the world. Right. And it's just, it's just something that you just love. You're, you're right. You're dead on. And I've loved it at every level. I've had different frustrations at every level. Like when you, like I said, you know, when you're doing pop one or you're dealing with mad moms and all that stuff, but it's just it's those three hours on the field that make it so spectacular. It's just awesome. And then there's the camaraderie build, just like when you played on a baseball team, right? You know, you got all these great memories uh, that you have with your teammates and all that you can talk about. And we have the same thing, right? There's so many great friendships that I've got through NFL and through college and high school ranks that and stories that that experiences that we've been through sometimes we forget the game itself and just remember the experiences that I have with our officials yeah 
All right, Danny. So my second question, and we just talked about it in terms of NFL reps essentially being part-time, right? You're working in the NFL, but you still have your full-time job. Just like, what's that like? To me, it's inevitable that it has to be stressful at times. You just said you're landing after a game on Sunday, you're going right to work on Monday, but you also have to evaluate your refereeing from that Sunday, and then you're flying out. And I'm sure every ref situation is different depending on what their full-time job is. Just give us a sense as to like what that life is like juggling two different jobs and commitments to two different employers. It, it, it can get very stressful at times, right? You, that's another thing. In addition to having your family life, you know, be backing you also have to have your employer backing you. If you don't have an employer backing you, it, it'll be very difficult. And I know plenty of officials who have had not been able to move up to the next level because they don't have that support and they have to make a decision. Right. And, so, but it's still the workload starts to pile up sometimes, right? And because sometimes we do, you know, we do Thursday night games, and so we we have to be at the game site Wednesday, and we we're not getting home until Friday. Um, sometimes we do Monday night games, you know, we're not getting home yep. until Tuesday, and we're doing Sunday night games. So those things, where the season now is four, three preseason weeks, it was it eighteen regular season weeks? Each team gets a buy, and the officials get a buy as well, but. The, you know, that's, that starts to become a very long season. So usually you get more fatigue, I think, than stress because you, you by this point in our careers, most of the NFL, they've learned to balance the two. Um, so you, you learn the, the mechanics and the techniques to balance your profession and you know, and the, your corporate job as well. Uh, but it just gets, when you get towards the end of the season, when we get to December, you're just tired. You're physically, mentally tired from all the, you don't get to like when you come home from a game and just like take the week off and relax and, and get ready for the next week. You've got to go into that mode of being like, I, I run a sales team for my company. I got to go right back into getting those guys, you know, managing my sales team. And so it just becomes more fatiguing than stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now the NFL, I mean, you just mentioned it. The NFL's pushing to Thursday night games, Saturday, Sunday, yeah. Monday. It's probably getting more difficult. This is your sixth year. Yeah. And they've added you know, those couple extra days, you know, two games on Saturdays late in the season. A few years ago, they added this. So like that, that's a new wrinkle to the, to the timeline, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just, I mean, I will tell you, they do a great job. Like the, uh, the NFL officiating staff, they balance us out. So we're not, not one particular individual or crew is doing too many, say what we call primetime games, Monday night, Sunday night games, I think, because, they're, they try to be respectful of your your employment because most of us have professional jobs. And so they, they try to kind of manage that to kind of keep it so it's not too demanding. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about when we, we think about all the stress that you kind of go through. And, you know, one of the questions I'm going to kind of bring in the corporate, my corporateness to it, like emotional intelligence. You're dealing with obviously grown very highly paid, uh, extremely athletic men, not boys. And well, not that NCAA is boys because those guys are grown ass men too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But like the emotional intelligence, the adaptability, Chris was hitting on earlier, you know, getting yelled at or screamed. Like, does the NFL send you through that sort of training for, uh, you know, that aspect? Like, hey, how to deal with stress, how to deal with these things? No, you've learned it. Yeah, so there's no real, like, at no level do you really have, like, a formal training structure on, like, how to deal with an irate coach, that type of thing. You just, by the time you've gotten to the NFL, you, you're you're proficient at it. You're very good at it. Otherwise, the NFL would not be hiring you, right? So it's the years of experience. It's the, the, the armor that your armor has been pierced over the years that you've taken the shrapnel over the years at the pop Warner level at the junior college level, you've just gone through it all. By the time you get to the NFL, you've had so many reps and so many of those challenges that, you know, you're ready to go. You've, you've been trained. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's the same, right. At every level. Right. I mean, it's just, you've got fans, you've got coaches, you've got players, and you have to, you won't succeed past Pop Warner or high school level if you don't learn how to manage those type of things, right? It becomes a critical, critical skill set, the emotional intelligence piece. And so it's, it's one of those skill set has served me well in my, my family life, right? Managing conflict with my kids <laughs> <laughs> in, in my corporate world, you know, managing conflict and doing things like that and, and being able to work on those things. So it's, it's a, it's a, 
invaluable skill set. I mean, it's extremely, extremely uh, important skill. So, Danny, earlier we were talking about the rule changes in baseball, right? Pitch clock, all the new stuff that's that's happening this year. The NFL has had no shortage of that over the last decade. I mean, like I think about the Brady rule when he tore his ACL in the first play of the game, and then the next year you couldn't dive out of quarterback's legs, right? And also now you can't really roll a quarterback over if you sack him. Like a lot of this stuff's quarterback-centric. And those are, I think, concrete rules in the rule book now. But there's also other stuff that at least I, as a as a casual NFL fan here every year, like, uh, you know, the refs are being told this year, we're going to let certain things go on pass interference, or we're going to call certain other plays tighter. How do you as a referee, like prepare for those rule changes in the coming season? Um, is it like crew based or are, are you talking with your crew before each game? And I'm, I know that this extends before game one, right? It's probably preseason and beyond that. I'm just interested in your approach with each season with the different rules coming in. So, so for example, right now for the NFL, they are in the process of establishing what are going to be any rule changes for the upcoming season. At some point when the ownership has agreement, those will be passed down to us. We'll see them first before anybody else. We'll see, we get what the proposed rule changes are. Then we get what the final set of rule changes are. And from that point forward, like it starts getting into our preparation for the season. Like right now we're, April, I don't even know what the date is. April, what is it? April 5th Sixth. or something. 6th. I'm already doing studying rules right now in April. I spend anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour a night studying the rules for the upcoming season, even though it's not until September, right? So once we get the rule changes, then we'll incorporate that into our rule study. Right now, I'm doing individual rule study on my own. And around, I think it's around May timeframe, early May, the second week in May, we'll start a more formalized structure where we'll have this huge group of officials and we even invite college officials to where we get together once a week on conference calls. We'll do zoom calls and we do studying as a big collective group and we'll incorporate it at that. And that means like doing uh, theoretical questions like, you know, these scenarios, if this happens and we'll incorporate those new rules. So by the time preseason week one, we're, it's like, we already have almost like a season in our belt of the rules from a rules knowledge perspective. And then we will spend time in training camps talking to the teams, like they send uh, officials out to all the various training camps, and we talk to the teams. We say, hey, look, this is the new rule. We talk about how, how we're going to officiate it, how we're going to manage that, and then we go into preseason, right? And so it's by the time we've gotten there, the rules are pretty solid from an officiating perspective in our, in our wheelhouse. Do they have you guys actually – I know there's refs at, like, training camp, like – Patriots will play the Broncos or whatever, right? For two straight days in terms of yeah. like an inner squad scrimmage. Do they have you all actually refing those scrimmages to yep. start actually practicing, calling the new rules and everything? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah they'll have us doing that. And what, and we spend a lot of time with players to try to help them understand, like, especially when you got the rookies, right? The rookies coming in the college, we help, we try to work with them more to understand the differences, the nuances between the NFL and, and college. So we'll we'll go to positional meetings, talk to the wide receivers, and we'll talk about the basics behind offensive pass interference. And especially when you got the rookies in there, we'll start to tell them what it's like in the NFL versus the college and all that stuff. And so we do obviously we do a heavy focus on new rules uh, as well as a part of those things. So Danny, yeah, uh, super interesting. I, I'm curious. So all this preseason work, and you guys are putting in a lot of a lot of time. Obviously, you need to be. But like, how do they determine? playoff crews and who's eligible yeah so you know for playoffs there's a very rigorous and robust pro evaluation process um, that evaluates every official including our replay staff so we all get evaluated throughout the season through that they make decisions on who gets to work and obviously when you're a super bowl official you've rated at the top of your class right so if you think about it there are seven officials on the on the field two in the replay booth. And so we have 17 crews. So you've got like, I am a down judge in the NFL. There are 17 down judges in the NFL. So you get evaluated against your peers and that's how they determine the top kind of go through the playoffs. So it's a pretty natural kind of intuitive process, but it's a very robust and very rigorous type evaluation process. Down, Do down judge. Sorry, real quick. Give me, give me, where is that on the field? So I'm on the line of scrimmage. So it used to be, okay. they used to call us head linesmen. So there are two officials on the line of scrimmage. You got a line judge and a down judge. And we're looking right down the line of scrimmage so I can see the offense and the defense. So typically you'd think of like 
I'm calling offsides, offsides neutral zones, offsides, yeah, okay, formations. But I call it all right. I call pass interferences, holdings, the whole nine yards. Not the only thing I don't call is roughing the passer. That's for the that's for the referee and roughing the kicker. So, like in baseball, the same crew is going to work a whole series, right? And the guy behind the plate one day. I think they go to third base because you had a whole whole day of action behind the plate and then they send them to third and they rotate around. NFL, though, it seems like you're going to be in the same spot. The refs are going to be yep. in the same spot for every game, right? That's right, yeah. And so do we, you guys you, ever – go ahead. You, you know, you don't. So, like, I'm a down judge. I've been a down judge. My first year I was a line judge, and then years two through six I've been a down judge, right? And so you typically – at this point in the NFL, you're really developing an expertise at that position, right? Like I consider myself an expert at the line of scrimmage, mm -hmm. right? And so we got the referees, always the same referee. You could have movement, like when a referee tires, you have to have someone replace that referee. So someone may move from one of those positions to referee, but then he's the referee for the, the rest of his career typically is what, what happened. That, that's a good point. Good question, Chris. You, so Danny, you don't ever see like a down judge, line judge, back judge, whatever, ever over the course of their career, move into the guy that's actually talking, the head ref. No, no, it, it, they do that because I, yeah. I that, that happens. Yeah, yeah, it could happen. Yeah, it could happen. Okay, just, I guess I was thinking it, that that those personalities, if you will, I call them personalities, because they're the only ones talking to us as yeah. fans. Yeah, you see them through college, and then you see them in the in the NFL. Yeah, so I'll give you an example. So Walt Anderson, who's my boss, the supervisor of officials, when he came into the NFL, he was a line judge. And he worked the Super Bowl as a line judge. I don't, I don't remember. It was like maybe seven years, worked the Super Bowl, and then he got promoted to referee. And then he became okay. a referee. And then he worked the rest of his career as referee. So, oh, is that so? Is that the hierarchy? Referee is like the high, like the main person? I don't, you know, you're, you're the average fan thinks of it that way because the referee is the representative. That's the person you see right. communicating on behalf of the crew. They take the brunt of the criticism because that's the only name they know. They don't know the names of the other and the faces of the other six officials. Right. But there's no really hierarchy per se. It's not like he's okay. the number one position and this guy's the number. We're all, we're seven officials all equal. We're really one team out there. Okay. Okay. So you're, you're just talking about communication. We've all seen it, right? Flags thrown, officials huddle up referee figures out what the call was if he's not the one that threw the flag and then relays it to everyone in the stadium and right. watching on TV. Um, is that the only time you all are able to communicate? Is there, is there like a real time microphone system where you can talk to each other or is it really you're on your own plays over if a flag's thrown, then you all huddle up and, and figure or tell them no, so, what the call was. So we, we try to avoid the huddles at all, if at all possible. Um, we do have a, a microphone system where we can communicate to each other. We, they, we call it O2O, official to official communication system. So that really um, accelerates the process that we go through. So if I have a flag, a false start, I don't have to run in and yeah. get into the referee's face and say, I got a false start number 65. I just get on my O2O and go false start 65. And that helps us keep the game moving, right? So we want to minimize any delays from an officiating perspective. And so that's what that's used for to accelerate that process. Pace of play. Sometimes it's like baseball. We, yeah. Sometimes if we have a complicated situation, like I might have a false start, someone else may have a different flag. We, even though we can communicate with each other, we may come to huddle just to make sure we talk about what the options are, making sure we're going to communicate it to the coaches. So the coaches understand what the options are. And then we can communicate to the coaches without, Everybody going over there. We one official can go talk to a coach and communicate. Here are your options, coach, and he he doesn't have to be running back and forth, right? Yep. So yeah. it's all about streamlining administrative administrative items in the game, so we keep the games flowing for the fans. Yep. So. Yep. Hey, Danny, one more question, or actually maybe a, a a thought or an observation, something I like as a casual fan, and then we get we'll, we'll go into uh, we'll kind of get to the rap segment of Man Pepper yeah. here. One thing and. and I don't know if this has been an emphasis over the past six, seven, eight years. I really enjoy the head referees who come out and, and like give a long winded detailed explanation of what just me personally, like I just love it when the guy comes out and is like, so, you know, I, what we had was a, you know, and it's like, it's like a story and I'm like, right. I'm invested in the story and what actually happened. And I don't know if that's part of the training or if that's just how some people do it. I feel like you were paid by Ed Hockley. Did Ed Hockley get you to pay? Because he, <laughs> no, like, he was he was notorious. Ed Hockley, he was a lawyer by by trade, right? That's what he did. 
And he was notorious for giving long explanations. Like you can YouTube Ed Hockley oh, yeah. explanations and you'll get like all his calls. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, it's, it's every referee has their own personality. And I think the NFL likes for their personalities to somewhat come out. Some, some talk more, some talk less. The challenge you have is when you talk more, yeah. you have a more, t- you have a more chance of making mistakes. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, especially if we have a complicated situation, if we got like three penalty flags, you got to remember what the penalties were, who the numbers on 55, 58, 14, what we're going to do. So if you, if you like to explain things, now you put yourself at risk of making a mistake and having a, oh, help, let me come back to you. So yeah. Yeah. I think we're a lot of guys or a lot of the head refs are moving towards me, just keeping it simple, just get to the, you know, tell them what the penalty is, who was on and let's move on. Yeah. So, 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 so I like it either way, but like, maybe it's the, the way that they approach the calls is what I like, where the guy's like, he's like, and for people who are not gonna be able to see what I'm about to do, it's like, they're coming up they're like, so uh, what we have here going on to the left is this uh, play that just happened. You know, it's like, they're so <laughs> casual and just like, like inviting you in on the, you know, comfy couch and having a cigar and a bourbon or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me it was a close call, but there was a slight tug of the Jersey, just yeah. slight, <laughs> which I think affected the play. And therefore we're going to go first down. Yeah, see, uh, you, you, we, we don't like to do that. We, I mean, like I said, we, they, they want the personalities of the referees to come out. And, and our, i got to say, having worked at all levels and at the elite college level, our referees are top-notch in what they do in terms of communication and how they manage the game. I mean, they, they are communicators. You know, they're officials, they're communicators, and they're game managers as well. They have to manage the other six officials and make sure that we keep a game cohesive. And so they are, a lot of them are corporate leaders, business CEOs. I mean, they're, they're these guys are, they're, they're very impressive individuals. I mean, like, look, you guys and uh, uh, basketball, baseball, and football each have their different challenges. I can't imagine being a home plate umpire in today's Major League Baseball where everyone can see a strike zone and those umps are graded on missing it by a quarter of an inch if it's outside. And even though that that is so small and it, really yeah. probably doesn't matter to the play. Every fan is seeing, well, that ball was outside of that strike zone. Like that ump sucks, right? <laughs> you're, you're all judging the best athletes in the world, which I don't think is really in dispute for the NFL running as fast. as You could possibly go jumping as high as you can jump at warp speed and trying to make these calls. And, and NBA is like so similar. So yeah, man, it's just, uh, I'm in awe sometimes like watching it honestly, like when I see that, like a call made absolutely correctly. And I tend to kind of give a little bit of deference or slack. If like you slow something down to one-tenth of a second and we're all looking at our replay, like, how could you miss that? And it's like, guys, they don't get, they don't have the benefit of this when they're throwing a flag in real time. It's, it's crazy stuff. You know, I, my old boss in the ACC, uh, Doug Rose, who's a phenomenal supervisor officials. He used to have this saying, he used to keep the statistics on our calls accuracy and he he always projected we were somewhere between 97 to 98 percent accuracy and he said that's great unless you're flying airplanes then it's not so great (laughs) yeah (laughs) he used to always say that i mean it you know it's it's a part of the challenge that makes it so fun is we always we're all striving to be perfect not one official goes out there with no more, no other goal than to be perfect. We want to nail every call. And it's just really impossible in the grand scheme of things. And that's why you've seen the incorporation of replay and using it where it makes sense to ensure that, you know, if we don't get something right on the field, if it's correctable, they can correct it up in the replay booth. And so that to, to keep the game moving and to keep the equity of the game there. So it's it's something we strive for. We accept that we know we're going to make mistakes. We're never going to bat a thousand. I think we're much better than baseball hitters. You know, hitters get paid millions of dollars to, to bat 300, right? If we mm-hmm. were, if I was efficient at 300, I wouldn't make it past Pop Warner football. You know, it's just, it's so. Yep. Um, you know, this is a baseball podcast. Don't bash it too much. Come on. No, <laughs> well, no, man, such, such good insight. And, uh, you know, uh, Chris and I were talking about it. Like, it's fun to have a little different angle on here. So I appreciate it coming on. But before, before we kind of, you know, wrap, we do something called Coach's Corner. Now, traditionally, we have a go a, a guest come on, and we have them tell a story, um, funny, stupid, usually funny related, um, of something that they did with a coach or a coach did in the past. Is there any funny experiences you had, maybe in the college realm, that 
you think back and you go, man, that's that was that was hysterical. It was just a funny situation. It, that's an easy one for me because <laughs> I got to tell you, there's just when I was in the ACC, I was working a Duke Virginia Tech game, and at the cle- if you ever pay attention, you see in college, coaches are on the field a lot more in college than they are in the NFL. We're a lot stricter about coaches coming into our we call it our office. You come on the green, that's our office, right? So we were much stricter in NFL. In college, sometimes certain coaches are a little bit out of control, right? So I was at Virginia Tech, and there was a guy named, I think his name was Bud Baker. He was the defensive coordinator at Virginia Tech. And we're working this game at Duke. It was uh, with Duke, and it was just a closely, a, a real tight game. There's an interception. And so interception, I got to start going the other way. And I turn, and, and this guy's got like a pick six or something like that. He's got a long sprint. So I'm running, and right at the last second, I look, and I'm officiating the play from the sideline looking in, and right at the last second, I take a look, and this coach, Bud Baker, is on the field right in front of me. And in my mind, my mind said, oh, this poor guy, I'm about to run him over because I wasn't stopping. I couldn't stop at that point. And I said, oh, I'm going to just rail this guy, right? And I had to even kind of – I got ready for it. And I hit him, and it went the complete opposite. <laughs> I hit a brick wall and bounced on the ground like a little kid just ran into his dad's leg or something. And I swear to you, the the ironic thing is I looked up and I was, you know, I'm all hot. Like, what the hell are you doing on the field? And I look up and he's just like, like, what, what was that? Like, and then it became just embarrassing for me. And then I never lived that down with my crewmates in the ACC. Like, I, they just constantly, it's like, really? You thought you were going to run Bud Baker over? Yeah, that, how'd that work out for you? So you better start running around people, not through people. So the Bud is we, on the field. The Bud is on the field. <laughs> I don't know if you, some of your fans, some of your listeners might know who he was. He was a big dude and he was a grit, one of the kind of the old school Grizzly football players. And I just remember hitting him. I can still feel it to this day. Like him, <laughs> he was at a standstill and I was at full speed. And I don't think he moved when I hit him. I think he just kind of absorbed it a little bit and I bounced on the ground. Oh, it was man. embarrassing. It's, it's a hit to the ego a little bit. So that's, <laughs> that's a story I always tell people when they ask me things, stories about fishing. That's one of my favorite stories. That's a great one. And yeah. sounds like it'd be a great gift to have. Like if your buddies don't already have it and like send it around as like, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> you remember this? <laughs> I, I will also tell you, I used to umpire intramural softball. Cause you know, when you go to college at that point, they're, you're either on the baseball team or you're playing intramural softball co-ed. I used to, I had a sunflower seed addiction. So I would be behind the plate. I don't know if any major league umpires do it. But spitting sunflower seeds <laughs> through my mask, and every once in a while, I'd see a collection of them on the catcher's back. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought, man, I'm good enough. I probably could be in the major leagues. I had the best strike call, I thought, in the league. Like my strike cadence when I called a strike, it was just an awesome. I was like, that's a strike call for the major leagues right there. Can we see it? That's something you can see. It? It's not as much as seeing as. It's as much as hearing it yeah. by strike, right? So, because you, you know, you got to have a little bit of personality. So, yeah. I would get this, you get a vision, the pitch coming across the yeah. plate, and I would just slowly look away and go, Stoop! <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, I didn't say strike. It was yeah. like, I think if you had to pronounce it, Stoop! I go, Stoop! <laughs> and I would just, Stoop! And then, you know, I never liked the showboating of when some umpires do the like on the strike three thing. Mm-hmm. The strike three was like, like I changed it for strike three. It's like, ah, it was a grunt. And I just always thought to myself, even at like 19 years old, like that's major league worthy right there. That's, that came natural. Like I should probably be in the major leagues, right? Quite frankly. I was going to so, ask if it came natural if you were like workshopping it in your bedroom as a 19 year old. Came absolutely natural. And I think it came from having all the sunflower seeds so that I couldn't say strike. It's so like I had to just because I had a gum full of sunflower seeds in my mouth. So. Or on the catcher's back at that point. Listen, I was a solid, solid college intramural co-ed softball umpire. That's, I'll leave it at that. So, well, the Danny Short, it, the man of many talents, corporate, hey. corporate, corporate worker, uh, family yep. man, NFL referee, yep. and intramural co-ed, co-ed or girl softball. It was co-ed. It was always co-ed, co-ed. intramural yeah. softball. I mean, Heck yeah, man. Those well, at least you know whenever your NFL days are over, hopefully it's not for a long time, but you'll have a home at that slow pitch league in Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that, that's, 
Listen, that's like stealing money from the baby, right? That's yeah, you yeah. Sit behind there, strike, strike. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll do that all day long. Plate, ball, hit the plate. <laughs> church, church league, church league down in Charlotte, just like our old leagues. There yeah, you yeah. go. Oh, so. <laughs> well, man, this was a lot of fun. I'm super happy you're able to come on and uh, you know enlighten the the man pepper uh, audience on a little bit of what the NFL world and and refereeing is all about. Hey, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. It was very unique to be on a baseball podcast to talk about NFL officiating, but I think we talked baseball as well. I appreciate you guys having me on again. Glad to do it anytime. Hopefully your uh, listeners enjoy it. I loved it, man. Uh, it is a baseball podcast, but at our core, we love sports. We love talking about everything. And this is a great segue into hopefully more similar guests to come. But yeah, Danny, thanks so much, man. It was great. Absolutely. All right. Best of luck to you guys. You too. Man Pepper. See you too.